But please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're in chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. That's found on page 916. So let me just give a, a, a recap of where we are in the book of Acts. So far in the book of Acts, we've seen that the, the early church has experienced this tremendous growth. It went from 120 people right after Jesus' resurrection to many thousands. And the, we don't know exactly how long it was, but it was a short period of time. And the power of the Holy Spirit had been poured out onto this church, giving them supernatural spiritual gifts. They had the ability to speak in unknown tongues, unknown languages. They had the gift of healing. They had the gift of supernatural generosity. And there was much excitement. There was much joy in this church. They loved one another. They took care of one another. They were seeing miracles and signs of God's presence all the time. Now, of course, where God is active, Satan is active also. And we saw Satan attempt to corrupt the church from within with the deception of, of Ananias and Sapphira. But as we saw in chapter 5, God acted quickly, God acted decisively to protect the purity of his young church. And Satan not only stirred up internal opposition, but we also saw external opposition to the work of God and the work of the church. The Jewish religious leaders, feeling threatened by the growth of the church, feeling threatened by the message, and perhaps even feeling a little guilty about the way, the shameful way they treated Jesus, they harassed the church. They sought to intimidate the apostles into silence, questioning them, arresting them, commanding them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, and even physically beating them. But none of this, none of this slowed the growth of the church. None of this slowed the energy of this church. At the end of, of chapter 5, the apostles were beaten. They were commanded not to preach anymore about Jesus. And what do we see is they're rejoicing. They're rejoicing to be account worthy to suffer for Jesus. So far from stopping the preaching about Jesus, they only proclaimed Jesus. They only proclaimed the gospel with even more zeal. In chapter 6, Satan tries a, a different tactic. He stirs up strife uh, along ethnical and cultural lines in the church. See, the Greek-speaking Jews, they complained against the, the Hebrews that their widows, the, the Greek-speaking widows, were, were being neglected in the daily distribution of, of food and resources. But rather than, than leading to a, a fracture in the church, the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they use this as an opportunity to actually strengthen the church with the establishment of the office of deacon. And the establishment of the diaconate, what it did is it allowed a, a division of labor in the church. You had the apostles, they were able to focus on preaching and, and, and prayer. And the deacons, they focused on the mercy ministry and taking care of the physical needs of the church. But all, both were, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit used both the apostles and the deacons to continue the expansion of the church. But then in the, the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, Satan's opposition to the church is taken to a whole new level. See, up to this point, Satan didn't really cause any real harm to the church. All the satanic opposition actually only strengthened the church, only purified the church, only grew the church. But as we saw last week, and as we'll see today, the intensity of this opposition has grown to the point of tragedy. And from a human perspective, immense suffering. Stephen, one of the first deacons, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, a man who provided physical relief for the Greek-speaking widows, he was unjustly through malicious lies, he was brutally murdered. And with Stephen's death, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and we talked a little bit about that in Sunday school for the children, with Stephen's death, the intensity of this persecution was, was taken to a new level. So this is the background. This is the background for what I'm about to read. 
Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many of them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this testimony of your church. We thank you for this testimony of your sovereignty. Lord, we pray that you will use these words, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, to bring you joy, to bring you glory. Open each of our hearts to hear from you, to have a saving encounter with you, to be changed by you, to be drawn more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, if any of you have ever been fired from a job, you know that it is a difficult experience. Now, I've been fired twice in my, in my professional career. You know, technically, I wasn't fired, not for cause. The first time, I was let go for economic reasons. The second time, I was in a position that was under a, a yearly contract that was normally reviewed every, renewed every year. But this year, my contract wasn't renewed. But whatever you call it, the outcome was the same. I was without a job. I, was, I lost my sole source of income. I had a family to support. And I was filled with fear and with doubt, anxiety, insecurity. But not only was I filled with fear and anxiety, I was filled with anger. I was angry. See, I had worked hard. I had sacrificed for these jobs. I kept my part of the bargain. And I felt like I was treated unfairly. In the first job, this was in the late 90s, back in Pennsylvania, I worked as a project manager for an engineering company. And when I interviewed for this job, the company, and when I accepted the job as well, the company was actually privately held. And the owners of the company, they had never before had any layoffs. So they understood that the type of business we were in was cyclical. They understood the nature of the business. And there would be, what they would do is they would try not to overhire people in the times when it was busy so that they can retain these employees during the slow times, which meant when it was busy, we were really busy. We worked hard. We worked long hours. But during the slow times, we didn't have to worry about losing our jobs. Well, the day before I start this job, I get a call from my new boss, and he tells me that the company's been sold. But he said, don't, don't worry. You still have a job. And, and, and he tries to play it up. He says, well, we'll have more, more resources, more capital. The, the, it, it'll be better for the company. Well, my new employer was a diversified holding company that purchased many of these different... They didn't really know the business. They had a whole bunch of different businesses from different industries. And their sole goal was maximizing profits. Now, we understand that. Maximizing profits for the shareholders. Those of us who are shareholders, who, have, who, are, who are investors, we want maximized profits. But this was a completely different culture to the company, a completely different philosophy from the, the previous owner, and, and different than what I expected coming in. 
And this change was immediately noticeable to me as, as well as to the uh, existing employees. And I felt like I was a, a victim of, of a bait and switch. But, but nonetheless, I resolved I'm, I'm going to work hard, nose to the grindstone. I'm going to be successful regardless of the owner, regardless of the corporate culture. And when I started the company, business was booming. So we worked hard. We worked long hours to, to complete the customer wars. But after about a year, the business started to dry up, which is, which is expected in this industry. And the previous owners, they knew the, the, the cyclical nature of the business, and they always kept back reserves so that they can hold the team together during these lean years. Um, it was only lasted usually a few, few months. And they had long-term R&D projects that were kind of kept on the back burner, didn't have time to work on when you're, when you're doing customer orders. And so that when, when business came back, we were more efficient, we were actually in a better position. But this was not the philosophy of the new owners. Their only concern was revenue. And if they did not have the orders to justify the headcount, what they did is they cut heads, plain and simple. So one Wednesday morning, a little less than two years I was with the company, I knew it was coming. I saw, I, I got, I had, uh, the general manager had loaned me a book. And, and, the, and the week before, he said, can you give me that book back? That's not a good sign when you know that, that layoffs are coming. So my boss enters my office, and he, he won't look me in the eye. He kind of closes the door, and he kind of hemming and hawing. says, well, you, you, know, you know, business is not good, and, and we're going to have to, we're gonna have to let you go. And, and at that point, he made me log off of my computer, and I, I gave him my corporate credit card and, and my keys and everything that I had. And he said, he said, I've got to escort you to the door. I was like a criminal. I had to be escorted to the door. And then, and then he said, you can come back here after 5 to clean out your office. And this was... This was not just me. 25% of the staff was let go that way that morning. And I can tell you, I was scared. You know, how am I going to support my family? But I was angry. This is not fair. I, I, I had worked hard for this company. And, and, and I worked hard when things were busy. And I'm discarded. And needless to say, this, was, this was just didn't seem fair. And I don't think they, I didn't think they treated me right. I, I, I don't think that they were meaning evil toward me. But, but what it was is, it, I don't think it was personal. I don't think they wanted to hurt me. But they had their agenda. They had their needs. And I was just in the way. I was disposable. And the other situation was very similar as well. I was angry at that as well. And looking back at these situations, the, the first one that happened was 25 years ago. The second one was, was about 11 years ago. I could say without a shadow of a doubt that God meant it for my good. Even though I was angry, even though I was hurt, God meant it for my good. I can look back now and I can see just what a blessing it was to lose both of those jobs. Now, it was painful. I'm not going to doubt that. it was. I was anxious. There was real economic hardship. But I can say without a moment's hesitation that if I could go back, if God said you can go back and you can either keep those jobs or lose them, I wouldn't change it in a moment. wouldn't change what happened in a moment. See, God had used the, the loss of both of these jobs to bring me and to bring my family to exactly where he wanted us. And he has so richly blessed us in these places that he's brought us. And these blessings, they're not physical, although the Lord has always provided for our needs. And I'm, I'm sure that I would have more money, be making more money, have more wealth if I stayed working in those engineering jobs than the way the Lord has led me. But the blessings, the, the real blessing was spiritual. It was eternal See, God had used me, God had used my family in ways that I could have never imagined if I would have stayed on that early path and not followed his call. And this thing is, in both of these situations, I knew 
that God was calling me. I knew that I was about to leave these places. I should, I, I was called to leave these places. I knew this long before I had lost my job. See, so the case of the, uh, the first job, God was calling our family to Virginia so Lynn could go to vet school. It was clear to us. In the case of the second job, the Lord was calling me to seminary, to come to Charlotte, to go to seminary, so I can become a pastor. It was clear. There was no doubt about it. The only problem was I was comfortable where I was. I really didn't want to go. I didn't really want to go through the pain of the change. Even though I knew it was God's calling, I wasn't moving in that direction. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that God would not allow me to remain comfortable. What he did is he made me miserable. He made me so miserable until I would be obedient. But you know what? I'm stubborn. I'm stubborn, and, and I refuse to listen. So God just forced my hand. He said, if you're not going to be obedient, I'm going to take away your job in Pennsylvania. And don't try looking for a local job, because there won't be any jobs that you can find. The only job you're going to find is in Virginia. And you know what? I found a job at the same place where Lynn was going to school. My office was less than a mile from where she was going to school. And what, and what, God is so awesome how he does this. See, God used the selfish motives of others and the selfish motive of me to bring me to where he wanted me to be. What others meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, what we see today in this reading is God forcing the hand of this early church. And it was difficult. It was painful. But God is using the persecution to get the church where he wanted her to be. So what was the command that Jesus gave to the church prior to his ascension? And this should be an easy one because I say this in every sermon. This is the theme verse of the book of Acts. If nothing else, we should have this verse memorized, Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem? But only Jerusalem? No. And in all Samaria? And all Judea and, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this command was given by Jesus in chapter 1. And now we're at the end of chapter 7. And where is the church? They're still in Jerusalem. The church had grown greatly. It had grown exponentially. They had much power. They had much excitement, much joy, much blessing. But they were still in Jerusalem. They did not leave Jerusalem. And despite all this blessing that God had poured upon his church, they were still being disobedient. So you remember the apostles, they were not from Jerusalem. They were from Galilee. And they, you remember why they came to, why they were in Jerusalem in the first place? They came because of the Passover. It was during the Passover they came with Jesus. And then Jesus was arrested. Jesus was crucified. They hid. Then Jesus was resurrected. And they spent 40 days with Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus was teaching them, training them, preparing them for ministry. And when Jesus was about to leave, he told them in Acts 1-4, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. They were not to go home. They were told to wait. And you know what they were called to wait for? They were told to wait for the Holy Spirit. They were told to wait for the Holy Spirit, which would come just in 10 days at Pentecost. And the people that joined the church at Pentecost, 3,000 joined the church. Where were they from? They were foreigners. They were, they were visitors to Jerusalem. They spoke different languages. That's why the, the gift of tongues got their attention in the first place. And we don't know how much time had, had passed since Pentecost, but the church continued to grow more and more and more. And they're still in Jerusalem. There's no mention at all of anyone leaving Jerusalem. <clears throat> I like to think of Jerusalem. You probably see those, those commercials for the Roach Motel. Know the Roach Motel? It says roaches check in, but they don't check out. Jerusalem was like a roach motel. They kept, they'd check in, but no one would leave. 
They keep coming and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. In chapter 5, we're told about people coming from, from surrounding towns for healing. See, there's no mention of the apostles going to the surrounding towns, which was what they were commanded to do. But the people from the surrounding towns are coming. And again, are they leaving? No, the church is getting bigger. Again, Roach Motel, they're coming in. They're staying in Jerusalem. No one is leaving. Leaving. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Jerusalem is where God was working. The Holy Spirit was active in a powerful way in Jerusalem. And there was, there was sweet fellowship in the church. And we're told that there was none in need. And there's excitement. There's joy. And we can understand why they don't want to leave. I know I wouldn't want to leave that type of spiritual community. In fact, the spiritual community that we had in Virginia was the whole reason why I didn't want to even to, to leave to go to seminary. We had such a, such a nice church, and it was really difficult for us to leave that and, and good spiritual friends and community. And I can tell you, when we went to seminary, it was difficult. It was three years. We had a good church, but it was far away, and it was, uh, it was really difficult to fellowship with them. But for the most part, those three years were dry years for us spiritually. And it really wasn't until we came here to Albany that we had a spiritual community like we had in Virginia. So I understand it. And there was persecution. There was persecution in Jerusalem. We see this in, in chapters uh, 4 and 5. But this was limited. And it didn't even really seem to be too distressing for the apostles. Right? The apostles, when they were, when they were beaten and, and thrown in jail, they saw it as a privilege. They said they, they, they rejoiced that they were seen worthy to suffer for Christ. See, the bottom line is that the church was comfortable in Jerusalem. And this comfort didn't really motivate them to want to move out of to Judea or Samaria to the ends of the earth. But all that is about to change. All that is about to change at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. See, God used the, the wickedness and, and the vileness of, the, of those who killed Stephen, and he used the wickedness and the evil of Saul of Tarsus to move his church to where he wanted them to be, to motivate them to fulfill his command that he gave to them. And chapter 8 starts ominously. It says, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. See, Saul is just warming up. This is simply the start. Stephen's death had really opened the floodgates of persecution. And isn't this the way sin always is? See, there's a threshold that somehow we're afraid to go up to that line. It kind of holds us back for a little while from sin. But once we cross that line, once we cross it, it gets easier and easier to blaze past it and to, and to sink deeper and deeper into depravity. I remember hearing a story about a guy who, who was in a sinful lifestyle. And he said he, the first time that he committed this sin, he, he got so disgusted and he, he felt horrible, felt sick. But he said the more times he did it, it got easier until there was no guilt and there was no shame. And he continued to go deeper and deeper into things that he would never even consider doing. And his conscience had been seared. And this is the way it is with sin. Sin escalates. Sin always escalates. And this is what we, we see in Saul after the death of Stephen. We see great wickedness. And I want to, I want to focus specifically on this verse 3. Because I think it's easy for us to gloss over this verse and not really see the horror of what it describes. Verse 3 says, But Saul was ravaging this church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The thing we need to notice here, there's a major shift in the target of the persecution. This is a difference in what we saw in the previous chapters. In chapters 4 and 5, the persecution, it was limited to the apostles. It was actually limited really only to Peter and John. So the church is several thousand people. We only see these two individuals, Peter and John, 
who are facing the persecution. And, and, and as we've already noted, this persecution, although it was real, it was, it was relatively mild. The, the, Peter and John counted themselves honor to suffer for Christ. Well, in chapter 6, the persecution intensifies with this arrest and false accusations against Stephen. And then more so in, in chapter 7 with Stephen's eventual martyrdom. But even with Stephen, and as tragic as this death is, Stephen is still an officer. Stephen is still a deacon. And as I tell the men, John somewhere back there, as a deacon, as I, as I tell the men training, you know, when you become an officer, a deacon, or an elder, you get a big bullseye put on your back because Satan is gunning for you. Satan is coming after you. And officers know what they're in for. Stephen knew what he signed up for. But look in verse, verse 3. The target of the persecution goes beyond the leaders. Saul is dragging off men and women. Saul is targeting here the rank-and-file members of the church. Not only the leaders, not only the shepherds, but the laity. Saul is going after the sheep themselves. And to make it even worse, it's not just the men. You know, men are heads of their families. Men are the ones that are they're called to fight and protect their community and their family. No, the targets are both the men and the women. And I suspect also the children. He was going after everyone. And this verse is extremely chilling. See, Saul was not arresting people in the temple or people where they worship or if they're worshiping in public where you can see them. No, he's seeking them out in their own homes. They're not safe in their own homes. And reading this verse, what this reminds me is of, of, of the horrors of the Holocaust. I remember when I was in, in middle school, we would learn quite a bit about the, the Holocaust. And we actually had Holocaust survivors come and speak to us. So if anyone thinks that the Holocaust is not real, I knew people and saw people who gave me eyewitnesses uh, accounts of the, the Holocaust. As a matter of fact, growing up in New Jersey, it was a very heavy uh, Jewish area. And truthfully, of these Jewish families that we were friends with, our family were friends with, I don't know any of them who didn't have some relative that was lost in the Holocaust. It was that real. And what you saw in the Holocaust, law-abiding citizens, ordinary people, people like you and me, people who lived in Germany or lived in Austria or lived in Poland, they are dragged from their homes. The Nazis literally went door to door. And then when they found them, they separated families. This is horrible. The men went one way. The women went the other way. Children went other ways, often never seeing each other. Again, I heard testimonies of a, of a person who was a child, and they're taken. They never saw their parents again. The Nazis came and took them, and that was the last time they saw their parents. And they're taken, hauled off to the death camps. This is what Saul is doing to the Christians. This is evil. See, Saul may have deceived himself in, in thinking that he's serving God some way, but this, per, this persecution had nothing to do with God. It opposed God. Saul meant it for evil. But nevertheless, God meant it for good. See, God had used this persecution of his church, of his people, of his beloved to scatter them, to scatter them to end their comfort, to motivate them to, to obedience to his command that he had given them in Acts 1.8, to be Jesus' witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, also Samaria, also to the ends of the earth. And verse 1 tells us that because of this great persecution, all except the apostles were scattered. They were scattered where? to the regions of Judea and Samaria. And in verses 4 through 8, we're given an example of the ministry in Samaria by Philip. And if you remember, Philip, like Stephen, he is another one of the men chosen to be a deacon. In verses 4 through 8, it says, 
Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. Wow. What we see here is the same miraculous signs done in Jerusalem and now done in Samaria. We see healings. We see demonic deliverance. We see conversions. We see great joy. And all of us, all of us is the result of Philip's preaching of Jesus. All of this was the result of pro the proclamation of the gospel, which came because of the suffering or because of the persecutions. You see, there was real suffering experienced in these persecutions, real misery, but this suffering was only temporary. This temporary suffering, this was the catalyst for the get the church back on mission. The results of the church's getting back on mission was them being obedient to Jesus' call. And these results, these are not temporary. These are eternal. The suffering was temporary. The results are eternal. And those people who suffered under Saul's persecution, who were, who were, who were arrested and thrown in jail, they are now, at this moment, they are rejoicing in heaven with other souls, other souls who are only there because they heard the gospel from those who were fleeing persecution. See, the temporal suffering, it has long ended. And it has been replaced with a continue, continual and a eternal rejoicing. The suffering was wrong. The suffering was evil. It was meant for evil. But God allowed it. And God meant it. And God used it for good. And my friends, we serve the same God. He works the same way. He uses things that are that done to us with evil motivations. He uses bad things. He uses tragic things. Things that happen to us in this fallen world. Things that are bad. Things that are evil in and of themselves. And God uses these things for our good. He uses them for our eternal good. And oftentimes, oftentimes he even uses them for our temporal good. As I mentioned with me, going through seminary and, and coming and moving, my temporal good. But he always, always uses them for our eternal good. And we need to, to firmly understand this fact. All Christians, I, I think, must memorize, must have etched on their brains Romans 8.28, which we use for our call to confession. All things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purposes. It's not that all things are good, but all things work together for good. See, we live in a fallen world. Bad things happen to us. We have real enemies. And our ultimate enemy is Satan and his demonic host. And these demons seek to destroy us. They are filled with hatred and malicious intentions. If you are a Christian, there are demons that hate you and want to destroy you and filled with malicious intentions towards you. But what they mean for evil, God uses for good. And this is guaranteed. And I know that each of us here, each of us at this very moment, are struggling with something. I know many of the things, but many I don't know. We're all struggling. And we struggle because we're not yet in heaven. We're not yet in glory. It's only then, only when we are in glory, that the struggle will end. Now, sometimes the struggle is more bearable. Sometimes it's, it's less intense. But other times it becomes unbearable, extremely intense. But nevertheless, it is always there. Some of you, some of you at this moment, you're looking at the imminent death of a loved one. And I know, according to the prayer requests. 
Some of you may be struggling with a, with a recent or even a not-so-recent loss of a loved one and wondering, how can I continue to go on? Some may be battling major health issues. Some may have overwhelming financial needs. Some are looking for jobs. Others may be facing the reality of saying goodbye to a dream or just the reality of, of everyday life in this fallen world. And my friends, all of these things are bad. All of these things are evil. But if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, I can guarantee you, not based on my own opinion, but based on the infallible, eternal, inerrant word of God, that God is using all of these things, all of these things, for your good and for his glory. And I can guarantee what others meant for evil, what others mean for evil, what Satan means for evil, God means for good. And God is using these temporal hardships to accomplish his eternal purposes and to bring us eternal joy. Now, at this point, I need to offer an extremely important caveat. See, Romans 8.28 has a qualification. It has a critical converse qualification. See, all things work together for good. This is not a general promise given to all people. All things work together for good only for those who love God, only for those who are called according to his purposes. In other words, this promise of God's favor and God's sovereign, providential directing of all events and all aspects of our lives for good, this is only applicable to those who belong to Christ. So if you do not belong to Christ, you do not have this promise. If you are not united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, all things do not work together for your good. But rather, if you remain in unbelief, all things work together, not for your good, but for your misery, for your eternal misery. You see, for the unbeliever, there are only two ultimate purposes of all things. First, either all things will work together to draw you to a saving knowledge of Christ. Oftentimes, I'll get prayer requests. We heard one today of someone who's not a believer, who's going through difficult times. I don't pray for God to end the difficult times. I never pray for God to end the difficult times. I pray for God to use those difficult times to bring that person to Christ. And then, when they're in Christ, to end those difficult times. But not before. That will do them no good. If we pray for an unbeliever and they have all the success in the world, they'll just be happy as they go to hell. No, I don't pray that. So that's the first one. The second purpose of all things, sadly, is if you persist in resistance to God's gracious offer of salvation through the gospel, all things ultimately work together for your misery, your eternal misery, your eternal separation from Christ, your eternal separation from all that is good, all that is pleasant, all that is enjoyable. So for those who are persistent in resisting God's grace, there, is, there will come a time. There will come a time when the door of grace is finally and forever closed. That's a horrible thing to think about. And after that time, all the good that this person received in this life, all the, all the times they heard and rejected the gospel, all the times they trusted in themselves and their sins rather than looking to Christ and his mercy, all these times will haunt them for all eternity as they are constantly tormented with the regret of opportunities that they knowingly rejected. So if there are any here, any who can hear my voice, any who do not know Christ, now, my friends, now is the time of grace. Now the door is open. Acknowledge yourselves to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. And acknowledge Christ. Acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and receive and rest upon him alone 
as he is offered in the gospel. Rest upon him for your salvation. My friends, this is your only application. If you're not a believer, this is your only application of this sermon or any sermon that I ever preach. But those of us, for those of us who know Christ, our application is simple. It's to trust him, to trust his word. You see, if you belong to Christ, you have a unique call. He has a unique call on your life, a unique way that you and only you can serve him and only you can glorify him. And our job is to discover that. And there's no greater joy than when we discover that unique call. So we are to seek to discern this call. We're not to sleepwalk through life. We are to diligently and prayerfully search it out until he reveals it to us. My friends, when he shows it to us, again, there's no greater joy when he shows it to us. And when he shows to us, don't be like me, enjoying the comfort and not following it. Obey that call that he gave you. Don't delay. Don't let anything, don't let anything in this world distract you from following this call. And follow this call wherever it leads. Now, often this call will be difficult. Often this call will take us far from our comfort zone. It may even require much physical and temporal sacrifice. And it may even require much suffering. But, my friends, it will be worth it. It will be worth it a thousandfold. Seek the eternal joy of, of a life lived for Christ, a life lived for the gospel. Don't settle for the, the temporal comforts and ease of, a, of an existence only for self, only for now. And when the suffering comes, not if, but when the suffering comes, plead with the Lord. Plead with him not simply to remove the suffering, but to give you a vision, give you his vision of, of the amazing and eternal things that he is doing at that very moment through the things you are suffering. And pray for the faith. Pray for the faith to trust him. Even in those times when, when you don't see it, when, when you're like me, when you, you don't know your father's behind you and you're scared, but you still trust, still trust that he is there. Trust knowing that whatever hardship he ordains for us, that God always, always, always means it for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the reality that is seen in this passage. That you use even things that are horrible in this world, even things that in themselves are bad, you use them for the believer for our good, to make us more like Christ, to give us joy that is unimaginable, and ultimately to bring yourself glory. So I pray, Lord, I don't know what people are going through here, but Lord, if there are people here that, that are at this point where they don't understand what's going on, give them that vision. Help them to understand what you are doing. Give them that joy. Give them that peace that passes all understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.